This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. We've got you now for an hour of science. We've got some great guests lined up for today, which we'll uh, introduce you a bit later. But in the studio with me is Dr. Linden. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good to see you. You, you sound too. very uh, dulcet there in your... Oh, am I? Yeah, yeah. It's probably because I spent yesterday wrapped up in a blanket inside. All right. Just being too cold. It was too. It was very cold. Yeah, it was freezing. Mm. Yeah. Any snow? I heard snow down to a thousand meters. I heard there was going to be snow, but I haven't mm. had that verified yet. Mm. Dr. Lauren. Good morning. Good I, to see you again. Good to be back. I, I'm just. I'm loving the picture of. I heard snow. Yeah. Down. <laughs> I've got amazing hearing. <laughs> I heard the little, you know, yeah. dribble down of of snow. Excellent. Uh, Excellent. Yes. No, but it was cold. I agree. Yeah. Yeah, very cold. Dr. Ray. Morning, Dr. Shane. Yeah, you you know, having lived where there was actually snow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> The idea of hearing snow is kind of neat to me because it's actually, after you get a, an actual amount of snow, it's very quiet. quiet. It's, it's, still, it's, it's, still, it's, beautiful, it's a sound it? absorber, yeah. snow. It actually does dampen down sound. Jeez, so. we're learning something already. We haven't oh. even started. Uh, <laughs> some news for the week. Dr. Lyndon, what do you got? Well, a story this week that really interested me. You know that we all inherit things from our mother, right? I inherited my mum's love of science and her hair, which is why I'm... Can, sorry, can you genetically inherit a love of science? Is um, that- Oh, is that what you're talking that's about? That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah okay. that's what I'm saying. Yeah, right. I'm going to stand by it. Yep. Uh, but the study this week uh, from researchers in the University of Geneva have found that seeds in actually inherit memories from their mothers. Mm, How wow. interesting is that? So mm. seeds, we know, we plant them in the ground. They remain dormant until conditions are right for them to germinate and to start to grow. And these researchers back in 2016 found that that information about how long to stay dormant before you kind of get going is inherited to into a seed by its mum. It's the maternal gene that tells a seed how long to remain dormant for before it's time yeah. to get going. So that's why, you know, the same species of plant will flower at different times or start to grow at different times if even though it's the same plant, depending on where it is, depending on the conditions. Does this mean if you took a seed that had a parent in the Northern Hemisphere and put it in the Southern Hemisphere, it's going to be really confused? Well, that's how I read it. I mean, possibly not that dramatic, but maybe, yeah. It's sort of this study was showing, or the previous study was showing that if you took... um, the maternal genes from different plants that have different dormancies put them in different temperatures. That information would pass on to the seeds. So. Oh, well, but it's dormancy, but it's not in a vacuum. It's with the environment, and there's triggers. Well, yeah, things, definitely. Yeah. But it does affect. You know, if you were to have it with a mum that I don't know was in a really cold place and then put it to a hotter place, I think it might get confused and take a little yeah. little while. It's yeah. probably around that issue of optimization. So where the evolution gives you the optimization of an extra twenty percent in growth rate or something, you might lose that. Mm. It still work. Yeah, but you lose the optimization that you get from that local knowledge. Yes, yeah, yeah I think so. I think that's kind of what it's saying. And this study now is just trying to look at that because it is quite an interesting concept a little bit further and try to understand exactly why that's going on. And it's mm. uh, it's really getting into this idea of epigenetics, right? This, in, this uh, th- idea of how genes don't change, but they get expressed differently depending on the environment that they're in. And I realise mm. that you, you all know more about it than I do, but uh, this, Don't look at me. <laughs> this study was just uh, showing that, so the seeds will inherit this information, this dormancy information from its mums, and that will, the level of how this dormant gene is communicated depends on the temperature that's experienced by the maternal yeah. gene, right? So the mum will experience a really cold condition, so it'll pass that information, that memory onto the seed. 
Okay, mm. not change the DNA, but change the way that DNA is expressed, right? And then what I thought was really cool is that the seed will remain dormant and it will sit there depending on how long, you know, the environment and also the mm. genes that it inherited from its mum. And then it'll germinate and grow. And then it'll wipe that information, clear that memory that it's inherited from its mum and mm. implant its own memory that then it can pass on to the next generation. Yeah, that's cool. That that's so great. cool. Yeah. I just like... Fascinating to look at this microbiological level of plant behaviour, which will help us understand agricultural changes. And as we get into a warmer world, figuring about how to optimise growth and different, you know, mm. plant success rates. This looking at this really small level, ah, just fascinating. This could be the newest, uh, coolest thing about plants I've learned in the next five years. Do you want to know what the last one was? It was something really simple. It was the ability of a plant, a flower, to track the sun during the course of the day. So, you know, they follow the sun, mm -hmm. but then to know to reset to the original position overnight, ready for the next sunrise. Yeah. And how they do that. Yeah. How like, do they and, do that? Well, it's, you know, it's, it's the contraction of one side of the stem versus the other and essentially having a body clock that yeah. says... I know that I have to be facing over here again by morning, so I'm going to... Uh, I mean, that, that that was the last thing that really freaked me out about plants. <laughs> plants, they are <laughs> incredible. This makes me think of that film, Day of the Triffids. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> They're smarter than we think. They are. <laughs> Dr. Lauren, what do you got for us? Uh, that, well, it's very cool to follow on from, but I'm, I'm going to switch back to humans now, and there's some research that was actually published on Friday from the Weehive by um, a scientist called Anne Rios and her team, and they've come up with a new imaging for new imaging technique for Brant's Bresker. Brisk, I'm totally out of practice. <laughs> You're right. It's too cold. We've all gone dormant. It's been too cold. Uh, breast cancer tumours. And so okay. one of the issues has always been about how to actually image a large number of cells at once. And so they have come up with techniques over time that have been able to, to do that to some degree. But one of the issues has always been it takes a really long time to, to, mm. to do that. So, for example, um, you can do immunolabeling deep within breast cancer tissue, but that can take weeks to actually get the, the specimen ready to then do imaging. And so this new technique that's come out of Weihai is called Large Scale Single Cell Resolution Imaging or LSR 3D. Nice. And what they, yeah, it was a very good abbreviation. Mm. I like it when they actually match up with the words. Um, but um, it, it's a great technique because what it allows the scientists to do is actually take a sample and then look at the cells alone, but also look at the cells that have evolved and developed from that mother cell. So again, talking about families, I guess. Uh, and so what this, they were able to find and what this publication was about was that they can see that from a normal single cell, the ones that evolve from that actually have specialised traits that allow them to change from epithelial cells to mesenchymal cells. So they basically are able to convert into stem cells and that's obviously why the tumour can then go ahead and grow so quickly. Mm. And so it's it's sort of um, basically adding to knowledge that I guess was known about how, how cancers can, can move. But the jumpingness, I guess, of it, so the fact that the, these um, have what they call EMT, so it's epithelial to mesenchymal transition. So these changes can happen very rapidly and they can continue to happen. So that's why the treatments then stop working yeah. because those cells yeah. keep changing. Yeah, they adapt. Mm, mm, exactly. Very interesting. So uh, having interacted with trying to do single cell studies with an AFM once, I learned mm. about the, the epithelial to and, and mesenchymal transition. Yeah. So it was insane. to. I was like, wow, cells can do that? That's kind of scary. It's amazing. But 
that varies from cancer to cancer and it wasn't as well understood in this scenario or that it, it happens so quickly? Yeah, so and, and it's also about the fact that it, it continues to happen. So, you know, um, it's sort of this thing that, you know, the cell will change and then we try and target it with a particular drug. And one of the biggest issues with breast cancer is drug resistance. So mm. our treatment will work for a certain amount of time and then it stops. And so this is, you know, adding another potential pathway of how that happens. And the imaging is of cells out of the body or...? yeah. Yep, so they're taking a sample uh, and then they're using particular reagents which have really big names that you would understand and I don't. Do, do they, they use a fluorescence microscope or a confocal one or like uh, they, super they, high resolution? Yes, yeah, so they were using a uh, high photon, I think. Two photons. Two photons. Two photons. Multi photon. Oh, okay. There we go. There. There. there we go. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, that lets you see a, a couple different dyes and it also lets you see into the the cell a bit more than just right at the surface where the cell is sticking on the yeah, glass slide. Yeah, yeah. So I, really cool. I, I didn't know much about imaging techniques for breast cancer before, and I was reading in some of the background information, and it's really interesting because you have to, you know, be able to make the cells transparent and for the different imaging, but you're also doing your immunolabeling so that you can tag look them, at tag, tag, tag exactly. Yep. So it's it's great that you know, these sorts of techniques are being yeah. developed that you can then use for all the scientific questions. And developed here. Right here in Melbourne. Yep, that's yeah. it, that's yeah. it. Dr. Ray. Dr. Shane, um, I wanted to talk about an advancement in um, photovoltaic solar cells. Now, um, we all know they exist. They're actually quite prevalent, and they're based mostly on silicon. Um, the biggest possible next-generation material are based on the, a mineral called perovskites, which is, of course, named after someone named Perovsky, because why else would you call them perovskite? <laughs> uh, anyway, they're... Um, they're, they're they're a mineral-based solar cell, they're photovoltaic, and they've been shown to have efficiencies as high as 22%, which is what's commercially available now. And, um, and they can be made at scale, which is really exciting too, So, and, and they can compete on cost. They have great advantages in that these mineral-based compounds can be made from chemicals off the shelf, so it's much cheaper and easier than silicon-based materials. The biggest challenges they have is um, their durability towards mm. moisture. Mm. Uh, and, they're, and that's because they have a layer of this mineral, and then they need a very unique polymer that has the right characteristics to get the electrons, well, technically the holes, out of the, the, the perovskite layer into the, conducting, uh, the collecting electrode. Mm. And it works really well, but they're not as durable. And so they have to add dopants, which can hurt the efficiency or they don't live as long. And and the, the, this demand on this polymer that it has to do everything just right about conducting the the generated electricity causes problems. And they've only really been able to get it to work with two polymers, which from a materials standpoint is kind of a surprise. Like yeah. materials people are great yeah. at making thousands of different variations of materials. And they, they have that problem. So what a group of researchers from South Korea have done is they've um, actually went and figured out... It was in nature, and I'd say at least solved it to an extent. They, um, they were able to find a cheap polymer, and they put what you could call the molecular fluorinated coating on it uh, and got it stuck to stick to the peroxide, kind of a, a fancy glue that has a couple cool electronic tricks. And they can actually make these things scalable. They don't need dopants. Uh, it was stable for more than 1,000 hours, and when you encapsulate it, they could run it for quite a long time. So. Yeah. Um, perovskites are, are seen as the next generation solar cell because they can be printed on things. They can be adapted to flexible uh, electronics as well. So instead of relying or, on organic LED, organic polymers, which is really what printable solar cells are on now, they, they, they can 
follow into all these different processes. So the durability part is the last thing that they really needed to discover some science around it. And this is a very good pathway that I suspect it says, hey, we can get this to work at efficiencies that are commercial on a scalable process, but it's probably just opened up the roadmap for other people to go, wait, they added this extra step, this cool molecular glue layer. Let's see if we can try other polymers too. And, and it's that variety, which will help hopefully see that as a, as a better commercialization. Interesting. pathway. Interesting. So when you say that at last it's stable for a thousand hours, is that a thousand hours of functioning or yeah, just? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, okay. so when they do a thousand hours, they, they, it's really funny how they write it. They say it was stable for a thousand hours in the intensity of one sun. And you're thinking, <laughs> there's going to be more than one sun? Yeah. Um, but, but that's, just in case. Uh, that's because they, they have these things internally called solar simulators, yeah, which yeah, yeah. simulate bright light over the same spectrum as yeah. the sun. And, yeah. and so what they try to do is, is, is that it's also simulating UV radiation, too. So they're trying to yeah. see if the whole lot. The whole lot, because different wavelengths will break down the chemicals, yeah. the, the materials differently, and, and that type of durability. Well, some, uh, some other news that came out this, in the last week from MIT, uh, small university in the U.S., <laughs> uh, was that, uh, you know, we've been looking for dark matter for a while, right? And um, we're still looking. Um, one of the experiments they've done there, and I'm going to give you the name of this experiment, and this is the only reason I'm doing this story, actually. I don't care about the fact that they didn't find dark matter. <laughs> the name of the experiment was enough to talk about this. Acronym, acronym. Oh, this, oh one, yeah. this one is a ripper. You're going to love it. But um, basically, the, this, this team has been looking for these things, and this is an international team, but they've been looking for these things called axions. And again, they're, they're particles, they're, they're very light particles that don't interact with us in terms of light or pretty much any other way but they have you know effects gravitationally and so forth that will change um they'll change certain aspects of the universe so the way the universe is expanding and the speed at which galaxies rotate um this this is a problem we need to solve because 85 percent of the matter that we should be seeing we can't see mm -hmm. and so hence the idea of oh well let's call the bit missing dark matter because mm -hmm. we can't see it which just seems like a reasonable name but the question is what is it and what it's what is it made up of there have been many theories and slowly but surely they're all being knocked out and this experiment's interesting because it looks at uh, these particles having a certain mass. And what most of these experiments do is they say, um, we will look for particles with a mass between, you know, one and seven. And so they'll knock out that range if they don't see it. And then they'll, another experiment will go between, you know, 0.1 and 12, and they'll knock out that range. And this keeps, this keeps happening, and you sort of narrow down what it can't be. Hopefully, you'll find it there, but you tend to narrow down what it can't be. I've always wondered about that, because I have heard that before, but mm. how do we know that all dark matter is the same? Like, well, you, well, you just the thing is, it? you don't. And in fact, yeah. you could just be looking in the wrong range. Yeah. So this, this experiment looked between 0.31 and 8.3 nanoelectron volts. That's a measure in particle physics of mass. And so if it's at 0.2, well, you missed it. Yeah. And they know that, so they're going to have to build a larger system to look at, you know, outside oh, so of that the, range. The range was dictated by the size of the experiment. Yeah, or the type of experiment in some yeah, cases. Okay. So, I mean, a good example of this is when they found the Higgs boson. Now, the Higgs boson was supposed to be at a certain range and, you know, the Large Hadron Collider looked in a certain range and it found it. And that mm. was, you know, it was a great prediction. 50 years 50 years in the past that prediction was made and, mm. and they got it more or less right. It wasn't quite where they thought it would be, but it was pretty close. Mm. So, but these are a bit different because we have no real idea and they sit outside of a lot of our normal theories. 
but to the experiment name. And tell me, this is one where I would ask whether they started with the acronym and worked out what to call the experiment, <laughs> or they started with the experiment and worked out what the acronym was. It's a backronym when you do it that way. So is it? Yeah. Is that a real term? Yeah. If it's not, I love it. Yeah. Um, anyway, it's called a broadband resonant approach to cosmic axion detection with an amplifying B-field ring apparatus. That's the name of the experiment, better known as Abracadabra. Oh, nice. That's that's excellent. Which way did that go? Did they start with the acronym and just (laughs) name this thing? Definitely started. Yeah, I reckon they started with the acronym. So, sadly, not abracadabra because they didn't find them. So, anyway. so they also disproved magic. Yeah. Yeah, you know. don't, don't you normally try to make things disappear when you say abracadabra? Yeah, well, I, think, uh, I think they've definitely made, well, the axions haven't appeared yet. They can't make them disappear until they've found them. But, you know. Anyway, uh, the search for dark matter continues. Uh, one day on this show, we will either tell people it's not real or, or they found it somewhere. So, But there's some missing mass. Only 85% of it, though. Not a big deal. So why hasn't Voyager bumped into it? I mean, is it, like, where is it? If it's in between solar systems well, and things, shouldn't at some point will Voyager, if we can still track it, show something about... No, no, because on, on those scales, and this is the interesting thing about dark matter, on smaller scales, like solar system scales, you don't see the effect of it. You mm-hmm. only see the effect of it on the scale of galaxies or the universe itself. So, and on those scales, it has a massive impact, but on small scales, it doesn't because it doesn't interact with normal matter. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you don't, you could drive right through it. It's probably passing right through you right now and you just wouldn't know. Similar to neutrinos. You know, they pass right through us. We don't know, but they're really important. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. In the studio with us now is Dr. Jess Borgers. She is from Monash University's Department of Immunology and Pathology. She's been on the show before. Welcome back, Jess. Thank you. It's great now, to be back. Thank you're you, here Dr. for Shane. a completely different reason today. We're not here still to talk science. about still science, but not your science so much. No. Um, but there is a new program, a new TV show called Smart Brains of Australia that's going to be starting up later in the year that you're going to be part of. So, first of all, give us a rundown on what this program is about. Yeah, it's. I'm super excited to be part of it. Quite honestly, too. So I'm just going to just going to be a judge on it. I'm Mm -hmm. not doing any work, really. Um, (laughs) So it was the brainchild of Suri Gupali, um, and it's through MeTV, which is a smaller channel. It's not mainstream, um, but it's really sort of the first of its type in Australia, TV show. And what we really want to do is harness the brains, um, the scientific brains of students, high school students in Mm -hmm. particular, uh, year 7 to 12. Is that right in Victoria? I'm from Adelaide, so you people are different to me. Um, (laughs) But basically it's... Yeah, we have schools too. (laughs) I know, you do, don't you? But what we want to do is really um, ask them to ask the questions for the mm-hmm. experiments because usually at school you're given sort of here's your research question yeah. do this experiment exactly this way and hopefully you get a response but what we've done is basically said you identify a problem in your home at your school community in the world then you formulate an idea of how you're going to address that give us some scientific background to how you're going to do that how are you going to do this innovation mm. how you're going to design it how are you going to do the experiment and then um, how is this going to really address the problem. So that's Mm. what they've had to do. So they've had to send in a one to three minute videotape, either as an independent researcher or as part of a small group. And Mm -hmm. they send that in and then that basically gets judged. Um, And then the top 24 will then go on to actually start to formulate their ideas and innovations, which is super exciting. It's across Australia. So it's fantastic. And so so what ends up on the actual show? Like, uh, you know, it sounds like there's a lot of background, obviously, before 
the filming and so forth. But yes. what, what will be on the actual show on the day? So the, so there'll be a few days of it. So there'll be the 24 finalists and you'll sort of mm-hmm. watch them throughout, you know, and they get some mentoring, which I think is, we can talk about that later, which is a big part of it. So they'll have yeah. someone help them throughout the process. But you'll basically watch them start from A to Z to get to the final process or the yep. whether it's innovation or a product you know, there's a lot of IP associated to this as well. And then the top 10 will go into a grand final show. Sounds great, doesn't it? Yep. Um, and they will basically, that'll be a live show. And then the, the winner will be announced. There'll be a runner-up, a second runner-up. And wow. they get a bit of cash. Yeah, fantastic. And a lot of other things, of course. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's great. It's interesting. I was just thinking uh, Lauren and I had a lot to do with a student a while back, which really kind of gave us a bit of fuel for coming on radio for a while. And, you know, I think it started off with he had a um, a request around doing a poster in optometry or on the eye and you then helped him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, It's it's amazing. It was, yeah, he's probably probably still listening. So if he is, hi. (laughs) Um, But yeah, look, it was amazing. And he reached out to us, which was fantastic. But um, I've had a lot to do with schools, actually. Mm. and, And I always find that they have the best questions you know they're, they're thinking so broadly and such amazing ideas and so it's a great idea yeah so oh, Linda. so Jess you're going to be on the show as a judge you have a background in immunology and pathology right do you know how many other judges there will be surely the kids can ask questions from all over the place you know is there a, are there a hundred judges to look at different areas or are you looking for critical <laughs> thinking no, there's, so there are four judges in total. There's myself um, and there's a surgeon and there's also the chairman of the Australian New Zealand Science Society. Um, and no, we're all very different backgrounds and there's someone from technology. So I think that's the thing. We're covering as many bases as we can. I'm that real, you know, because of what STEM stands for. I'm that base scientist. But then we've also got technology involved. We've got engineers. I'm not sure if we have a mathematician involved, but the thing is there's also going to be the mentors. And I think that's what really got me excited about mm. this process because I think we all know mentoring and life is exceptionally important and I must admit in my career I never really got one till I was about 40 a few years ago when I came back to Australia and really how that advances your career the way you think about things the opportunities you have you think these kids are going to get mentors from the age of like 12 possibly not only for that project if they're smart they'll harness that throughout Mm. their careers possibly yeah and I suppose working with each other as well right will the 24 finalists get to interact do you think will they all be brought to some kind of master chef style house to <laughs> I'm do imagining, their work? imagine a house that'd be great right no I'm imagining you know they will get t- together probably not the 24 but the 10 the 10 finalists whether they're individuals or groups and they they won't interact directly as in to do the experiment you know that will or the mm. in- invention that'll be their in their direct group. Um, but I believe there'll also be a few challenges set out to them as well. So some scientific challenges, because a big part of it is that we want to test their scientific knowledge. We want to make sure that they are going to, they are scientists. Okay. But then my next question is thinking about these kids. I'm just, I'm very excited about that. See that? <laughs> Working with kids from year seven to year 12, if they're in year 11 or 12, this is probably going to take out a big chunk of their time. Do you know how much this kind of works into the curriculum? I assume most teachers who are listening are being like, ah, oh, we ain't got no time for that. We've got to, you know, teach these kids a bunch of stuff. Well, so I can't speak on behalf of the teachers, but I know there are opportunities for the teachers to be involved in this program as well. So if their group has been put forward, they can also become part of the judging panel. Um, so it's good for the school as a whole as well, I think. Imagine you've got a represent, mm. you know, representative group from your school. Of course, the most important thing is their exams. So mm. they need to concentrate yeah. on that, obviously. But I suppose they've put their hand up for this, knowing it will take extra time. And I'm sure they would have their teachers support who wouldn't support their students to yeah. do this. And this is something where I think, Jess, is there's quite a gap in Australia 
there. I remember uh, just a few years back, I was in LA visiting the Space Shuttle Endeavour. Sounds like it's a friend of mine, but no, it's just an exhibit <laughs> as a museum. But when I got there, and I was there with my, my business partner, and we, we roll up to the front door, and there was this queue a mile long, and I'm thinking, yeah, well, this Space Shuttle is awesome, right? What we didn't realise, there was actually no queue to see the Space Shuttle, no one cared, but, but there, was a, there was a student science fair that was being held there that day. And there was literally like a thousand students with all of this sort of stuff all doing that. This doesn't seem to happen in Australia almost at all as far as I can tell. So there's that gap of, you know, encouraging kids to do this sort of stuff outside of the classroom, outside the school in a way that's competitive. And we we just don't have much of that. Well, perhaps the counter is that really affects those high school students' chances to get into university in a very positive way. Yeah, We look at an exam here. Yeah. There's no, yeah. wow, you won the National Science Fair. Yeah. Obviously, we yeah. should accept you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Universities don't exactly yeah, yeah. have Sorry, that Sorry, what's, yeah. what's your inter school? Sorry, Lauren, you were going to say something. Um, so I'm intrigued by the mentors because, yeah, we've got some amazing scientists in Australia. Mm. So I'm assuming there's a, a big range of people to choose from. There that. is. So I'm not privy to that information mm. yet. And unfortunately, Sri, who's part of this, couldn't be here. So he's operating, I believe, on someone in Adelaide. He had to fly over there. Right now. So he's quite an important person, yes. Let's let him do that. Um, yes, but I know that they've selected... Um, it's more, I think, they've taken mentors that are more on the innovation side of things so that these right. kids are also going to learn... Again, I can't speak for... We haven't seen all the submissions yet, um, but they'll be mentored not only on the innovation itself, but also, you know, they're learning about IP, how to, you know, apply for IP, possibly, if their ideas are there. Yeah. So it, it's it's fascinating, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, just I think uh, these guys are going to question you all day. I can we, see that. We, we, I know. <laughs> we've, got, we've got two other guests to get to, so we're going to have to draw it to a close. But uh, look, it sounds great. It's starting in around august somewhere. Around August, I believe, is sort of when the finals are on. So yep. it's, so it's too there. late then for schools to be applying now? As far as I know, it closed in December. Mm-hmm. Um, unless, I'm, I'm, yeah, there's some other information out there. I don't think so. Looking at the website that I checked out this morning just quickly, yep. I think it's closed to submissions. But. Well, look, it's, it's, it sounds exciting and sounds like it'll be a success. So um, there needs to be a lot more of this in Australia. It'd be really great. We'll keep so. an eye out for us. Give us a bell when it's about to start and we'll make sure it gets, uh, you know, promoted by us. But um, have fun. Be oh, fun being a judge. Not? Yeah, it sounds like it's going to be a kid again. <laughs> is this your first time on television? Yeah. Yeah, awesome. So We'll see how that goes, won't we? Yeah. yeah apparently, <laughs> oh, apparently it's exactly the same as radio, uh, except that they can see you. <laughs> that's <laughs> the worry. Yeah, Jeez, that's why I've gotten away with this for so long. Uh, thanks so much, Jess. Good thank to see you, you and uh, good luck with that stuff. Great, thank you. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. In the studio with us now is Professor John Langford. He is from the Department of Infrastructure Engineering at the University of Melbourne. John, welcome to the studio of Triple R. Oh, I'm glad to be here. It's great to have you in because you're working on something that, you know, we in Melbourne, I think we're, you know, across the world, but in Melbourne in particular, we're a bit obsessed with our water supply and people right. love talking about it. But um, Melbourne's water supply system is incredibly complicated. And in fact, many people would realise the controversy around the building of the desal plan a few years back. And have we even switched it on at any point? Has it been used? It certainly has been yeah. used. Um, uh I think two years ago, 50 yep. gigalitres. Right. Gigalitres, a billion litres. Yep. That's a lot of water. A lot of water. And they've just decided to uh, turn it on for another 125 
gigalitres. Right. It has a ca- capacity of 150. Wow. And when it comes to the complexity of Melbourne's water supply system, in an earlier life I was in charge of operating it. So right, I, yeah. Um, uh, uh, have an intimate knowledge of it. Yeah. In terms of uh, the, the way in which we use the detail system, though, this is where you've been doing some modelling. Yes. And looking at you know, when, when we should be turning on. I suspect people's general thinking would be, when our water reserves get low, you turn that bad boy on and, and off you go, you, you get what you need. But you've been looking at it and finding that that's not necessarily the right, right way to go. Tell us about that. Well, uh, we have two choices, really, to keep the storages higher, to mm-hmm. provide a buffer against drought and uh, crisis, or we can let a crisis occur mm-hmm. and then use the desal plant to dig us out of it. Yep. Uh and it's more economically efficient uh, to maintain the storages higher right. and avoid a crisis. We can save $250 million over 20 years. Right, which is not a small amount of money. Money, mm. but uh, you might save money in the short term by not turning it on, but that's going to cost you because mm. the most effective way of avoiding building another desal plant is to use the one we've got. Right, right. And it seems very timely to me. My, my in-laws actually live near the Blue Rock Dam and I was there recently and it is so low. I think a lot of people don't realise how low our storage is. Do you know what the stats are at the moment about how much we have in storage? Well, Melbourne, the last time I looked, uh, was about 54%. Mm. Now, uh, the elephant in the room with all of this and low storage is, in fact, climate change, which mm. is impacting our water supply for reasons I can tell you. If, yeah. Are we, so, John, just on that, are we, I mean, I think we all know that that's going to be one of the effects is that, you know, changes in rainfall and so forth will be one of the effects of climate change. But are we already seeing, is there indications in the data that we can see right now that links our water storage levels to the change in climate? Yes. Okay. Very clearly. Right. Mm. And what, what does that look like? I mean, well, what are we seeing there? Let's, a little bit of basic hydrology. Mm. Uh, the stream flow is a small residual between the rainfall and the evaporation. Mm-hmm. Say, for example, we had 100 units of rainfall and 80 of evaporation, mm-hmm. 20 is 20 in the stream. streams. Yep. We dropped the rainfall by 10%. We've mm-hmm. halved the stream flow. So yeah. small yeah, right. changes in rainfall and evaporation are, are amplified in what happens to our rivers. Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. So we're seeing that. We're seeing that. The other thing is uh, we have two sources of rainfall in this part of the country. Mm-hmm. In autumn, winter and spring, we have the westerly systems, yep. the cold fronts and highs and so forth. And in summer, we have the northwest cloud bands Tropical that bring stuff. water yep. from the Kimber- rain from the Kimberleys. Yep. What's happening is the westerly systems are shifting south. Right. And so just, south, unfortunately, is over the ocean. So it's raining over <laughs> New Zealand or somewhere yeah, else, yeah, yeah. not over us. Yep. Now, the best indicator I've got of this is the occurrence of very wet months, high inflows into our reservoirs, yep. okay? They're the things that recharge our dams and allow us to uh, uh, provide water over extended droughts. Yep. Now... In the last 22 years, since 1997, we've had one very wet 
high mm-hmm. inflow month mm-hmm. into our reservoirs. One, one. on mm-hmm. the previous 80 years, we'd expect 15 in that time period. Right. And oh, 15 you, in a period of 20 some, years. Uh, 20 yeah, years, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, wow. and that's pretty dramatic. It's big difference. One yeah. and 20. Yeah, one, yeah. one, one and 15. 15. Yeah. Yes. Mm, so... so um, yeah, Ray. Oh, Lyndon. <laughs> uh, I have a, a so um, this speaks to me a lot. I understand a little bit about that. I I understand this idea that our dry our winters are getting drier. I mean, there's a lot of year to year variability, but our winters are getting drier. But then there's some suggestion that this tropical moisture, this tropical rainfall events that we're seeing might be happening more often. So on balance, the annual rainfall that we receive in Victoria, some people could say is about the same. Like, what do you say to that kind of argument about the timing of when this rainfall comes in terms of the hydrology? Well, uh, we had two of the wettest summers on record in 2010-11 and 11-12. It absolutely bucketed down Mm. and it... helped to recharge the storages, uh, but it occurred in summer and the catchments are drier and the temperatures mm. are higher, so more. So more the summer rain is not nearly as effective. It's very good for our gardens, mm. yeah. but it's not nearly as effective for at storage. recharging our dams. Yeah. And if you look at the storages since those two summers, we got to the mid-80s, now they're uh, the low 50s. So yeah. over the last... Yeah. Uh, eight or so years that Thompson and other storages have just gone down, 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 down. And, and John, coming back to the system, Melbourne system, when we turn on the desal plans, and this is just so I'm asking a piping question here, can we can we pipe the water back up to the reservoirs or can we only pipe it to the Melbourne metropolitan system? Uh, well, the desal plant is at Wanthaggy. Yep. It's a pipeline and a pumping station that puts it in Cardinia Reservoir, right, the okay. second largest reservoir. Yep. There is a pump that can pump that water to Sylvan if necessary. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so it can access Melbourne's water supply. Uh, Melbourne's water supply is connected to Geelong, so mm. that uh, they also... Um, uh, the areas to the west of Melbourne, Sunbury, Macedon, yep, Western yep. Waters area can get to all, that. All connected. Yeah, that's all great. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to get get back to <clears throat> the comment you'd said about the $250 million savings for yeah. running a desal plant. Now, I was curious where the where the breakdown was. So I know that a desalination plant runs better if it's running, that there's a cost associated with starting it up, turning it off, starting it up, you the durability on the membranes can be affected as well because they have to be replaced over time. So all those transients affect it. But it, the cost isn't just that there's some economy of scale by running the plant continuously. There must be some other driver to, to have that type of modeling, have that type of savings. Uh, well, it's a question of how much water you've got in the storage. And they have a set of rules about when the uh, storage hits 60%, uh, turn the plant on at such and such mm. a level, etc. And it's those rules we've been looking at because the amount of water you've got in the storage is fundamental to the long-term security. If it's too low, then you run a substantial risk of getting into a crisis and having to build another diesel mm. plant. Oh. Okay, so we're looking over a 20-year time period, which is, um, and we're looking at the net present value over the 20 years, and there are critical points. There's a minimum storage uh, beyond, below which you don't want to go, 
And so we've modelled a lot of hydrological sequences and then worked out that net present value of the costs uh, of uh, augmenting the system with another desalination plant or expanding the one we've got. Mm. And so we can work out those costs and so we can work out the operating costs uh, of running the desal plant. Uh, forgive me for oversimplifying that. It's almost like the water has a value. I know the present values are about the, the things exactly. to clarify, but the water itself has a value. Yes. And the lower the storages get, the higher the value. Mm. You might have noticed 1950, $1,850,000,000. <clears throat> Uh, figure that is starting at a lower storage. So the value of the water depends on the level in the reservoir. It's a very full, relatively yeah. small value. And as you go down, the value increases and it gets to the point where it's uh, the value is a lot more than the cost of operating the diesel plant. Yeah, yeah, which makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Yeah. So with the cost of the operations, I'm, I'm assuming that a lot of activities at the desalination plant are automated, but is there a question of staffing? Like, do the number of engineers you need to have go up and down depending on whether we're using it? Uh, I would suspect not. Uh, and uh, going back to the earlier question about membranes, and I understand they've decided to run it at a low level, like about 10 gigalitres, to make sure the plant is ticking over, because it's not the sort of thing you can turn on and off. It might take mm. you six months to actually decide get it to going. get it yeah. going. So it's better to uh, have it running at a low level and then uh, crank it up. And I would be very surprised if there are any staff costs associated with doing that. So the work you're doing at the moment, John, is trying to make sure we're using the desalination plant in the most effective way we can, right, to save money or to not spend money that we don't need to spend. And that's being informed correct me if this is wrong, by the hydrological modelling that you're doing. But are there other analogies that we can use elsewhere, places in Perth or South Africa, where they may be using an incorrect algorithm? Well, in Cape Town, uh, they didn't build a diesel plant and they nearly, very nearly ran out of water. Mm. They were just lucky enough to get some winter rain um, and got... Well, they're still in a crisis, but well, because they get their wind, they get their rain from the same kind of systems that we do, right? Exactly. Yeah, and they're further north than we are, so they're suffering it more than we are. And Perth, uh, what happened to us in the mid nineties? All these really high inflow years disappeared. Nineteen ninety seven in Perth, it was nineteen seventy five, right? And the inflows to those their reservoirs in Perth have dramatically decreased. They have two two desalination plants. They are fortunate to have groundwater, although I'd suspect they're unsustainably pumping that. Mm, mm. And so they're going to need, uh, they're looking at potable recycling, uh, which is the mm, other yeah, option. Yeah, I love uh, drinking that stuff. John, in terms of the, um, inter- well, <laughs> actually, if you've been to Singapore, you yeah, probably have. Yeah, no, but it's interesting that the thing is, of course, is there's a public um, pushback against that, but there's really another, you know, there's another problem with that. I mean, for me, if it works on the International Space Station, it should work for everyone. But in terms of the, the next step, I mean, you, you obviously need to use this data now to influence the sort of policy decisions around when we switch this on. How's that proceeding? Because that, that seems to be like the, the big ticket item here to change the way we... As you said, the rules of when it's used need to be modified. Uh, well, uh, 
uh, we're a university, uh, so we're not in charge of operating the system. Mm. The, the Victorian government are, but we've provided them with the work yep. that we've done and uh, briefed their staff and so forth. So yep. they're well aware of what we've done. So hopefully they'll. Um, well, basically, uh, 125 gigalitres is a really good decision. Yeah, and and whenever you have numbers like 250 million savings, I think some yeah. governments tend to their ears um, prick up and they tend to listen a little bit. So, yes. well, look, it's it's fascinating work. Actually, I hadn't really thought about um it is so it's one of those things that's come out a bit counterintuitive to what people might have expected in in you know the use of the self plan yeah. as being something you just turn on during emergencies but um the idea of keeping those storages up being a more viable option uh, sounds it sounds pretty good thanks so much for chatting to us today on Einstein and Gago. good luck with the with the campaign to get these things working more correctly uh, thank you. It's a pleasure being here. Professor John Langford is from the Department of Infrastructure Engineering at the University of Melbourne. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 FM in Melbourne, Australia. Well, folks, uh, we've got 10 minutes left on the show and we have managed to get a third guest into the studio. Her name is Helena Petrak. She is the education representative at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute for their student association. She's a PhD candidate in the Hanson Laboratory working on infection and immunity. Welcome to the studio, Helena. Hi, Shane. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks it's, for having me. It's great to have you in because uh, we want to talk about, uh, you know, this area that uh, no one knows about, malaria. <laughs> All right. It's a, it's a big problem around the world, but it's an area that WeHi, we've had many guests over the years from WeHi talking about this because it's an area of strength for the Walter Eliza Hall Institute. But um, the area you work on is something we haven't talked about before, I don't think, and that's, um, well, we'll get to it. But first of all, give us an idea of how malaria works in terms of an infection. I mean, how do you get malaria? So it's one of the most serious infectious diseases globally. Um, mm-hmm. It's really highly prevalent, causes around half a million deaths every year. And yep. um, that's recorded deaths. And essentially, it's a parasitic infection. So it's transmitted by a vector, a mosquito vector, mm-hmm. and it enters the bloodstream and then travels to the liver, replicates in the liver, travels to the bloodstream from the liver. Right. Parasites, then, little parasites. Little parasites, yeah. 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 It's pretty gross, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so essentially... This blood stage of infection is where the majority of those symptoms will come from. Okay. So you can get relatively mild malaria, um, which is just sort of fever. It's not very pleasant, but it's not life-threatening. Okay, yep. Um, like having the flu almost. Yep. And then you can get more severe disease. And okay. so this de- this generally comes from um, parasite sequestration. So okay. they're very pesky, these little parasites. When they're invading the red blood cells, they remodel the red blood cells mm. quite a lot. And in doing this, they export various proteins and they make the red blood cell sticky. Okay. And they do this because they don't want to go through our spleen. Right. Because right. that's where they'll be detected by the immune system. Killed off. Yeah. Yes. Yep. So they get really sticky and that's really bad for us because mm. the parasites um, then cause blockages physically. Right. And what our lab specifically focuses on is how when these blockages are occurring, a lot of immune cells are recruited and there's a really heavy inflammatory state as well. Mm. So this can result in really, really severe infection. When it occurs in the brain, it's called cerebral malaria and it can result in stroke and ultimately death due to disease. Nasty. Yeah, very nasty. So I have a friend who who works in public health and has been to some of these developing countries and has managed to get malaria a couple of times, which is very bad luck. But how how can you get it a few times? So if if you're getting it and the immune immune system is responding, Mm -hmm. how come they can get it again? 
That's a really great question. And that's one of the really interesting things about malaria. So when you would get an infection, say like chickenpox, you'd either get the vaccination or you'd get the infection and you don't usually get it again. Mm. Um, and that's a fully functioning immune response. So that means that immune memory has formed to that infection. Um, so basically when your white blood cells recognise infections, they can form memory populations. So they attack the infection mm -hmm. and the foreign bodies, the pathogens, and then they form a memory so that later if you see it again, you can just counter it and it's all fine. Um, whereas in malaria, epidemiological studies from the field have shown that despite in these endemic areas where you're getting infections again and again and again, mm -hmm. many, many times, even travellers experience that too, mm -hmm. uh, there's a real difficulty in You, you keep getting these infections. It takes a really long time to stop getting a symptomatic infection. Mm -hmm. And even more interestingly, you never get a sterilizing response. So there's always low levels of parasites in your blood. You might not get the symptoms. Um, but yeah, so that's the only uh, protection that you end up getting. So there's something going really wrong mm -hmm. with the formation of memory. So is, is that something that only occurs with malaria or are there other pathogens that cause us the same sort of problem and confuse our immune system? Yeah, there's various pathogens that um, don't result in really ideal immunity, even for different reasons. Mm. Malaria's um, got its own set of reasons, but there's, you know, HIV is really complex and evades the immune system. And yeah, so it's not um, exclusive to malaria, but malaria really it's a very complicated parasite and mm. so you've got that factor your immune system would have to see it many many times in order yeah. to form a response yeah. it's mutagenic it can change its antigens as well so that makes it even harder and then what we look at is the inflammatory setting and yeah. so the inflammation actually physically disturbs the ability of immune memory to form. Yeah. So it can skew the development of the cells that are involved. And is that specifically what your PhD is about? That, that part yeah. There? yeah. So I look at um, B cells. Mm -hmm. So they're a white blood cell population yep. Yep. that are responsible for, we know that the antibodies that they produce, which are proteins in the blood, are really important in the production of, so when you get your clinical protection from disease, antibodies play a really important role. Mm, mm. And so I look at how the memory in those B cell populations is not forming properly. Right, right. In terms of the B cells, I mean, one of the things I've always been curious about is because our immune system is so complex and it's dealing with so many things in a given time frame. Mm. How much memory does it have? And and do we know, like, just in terms of data, where is this Where is this memory? Like, how's it being stored? So it's stored in the actual cells themselves. Mm -hmm. So when you have an immune response, you produce effector cells that can immediately deal with the infection. Mm -hmm. And then those cells become long-lived, like, quiescent populations right, right. that are sort of asleep and waiting. Oh, right. For so they, they hang around, infection. they know. Yeah. They hang around and they know. And so I, I, I actually don't know whether there's like a limit yeah. to how many. I, they're really, it's a well, very produce, extensive system. So they produce newly for a new infection and then they just get stored. So presumably just. Yeah, so then you have a it. memory. Yeah, you have these memory cells that are able to be awakened. Yeah. And is there, any, is there any link between like how many infections I've been exposed to and how good I am at, therefore. You know, responding to new ones? Like, does our immune system do the equivalent of working out? <laughs> it really does. And that's something that's a really big issue in malaria. Specifically, mm. children under five are the most susceptible right. to the severe disease, um, yep. particularly as well. Um, and this is because, in general, they haven't experienced a lot of infections and their immune system hasn't had it sort of work out 
yeah. to be ready for new infections. So. Yeah, and, and do vaccines help with that? Like, so when we vaccinate people, I mean, presumably that's that's kind of yeah. a, a way of that's a way of training the immune system, system, right? So the, the earlier you do that, and the more of it you do, the better your immune system presumably exactly. would be. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's that's interesting. Now, how long have you got to go on your PhD? How far in are you? I'm just about to come up to one year. One so year. I'm very early. But yeah. <laughs> so uh, just still the glory days. Yes, glory days, definitely. Yeah. It's all so what does that mean your days look like, Helena, in terms of studying these cells? You know, what, what does a day look like or a week <laughs> look like for you? I mean, obviously you're reading a thousand papers at the moment, but, yeah. you know, what <laughs> does it look like? Um, so at the... I basically work with a murine infection that models the severe disease. So I basically collect my spleens. Um, human spleens? Definitely not human spleens. Oh, okay. no. <laughs> Mouse spleens. Okay. Um, and I prepare them and then I stain them. So I use a technique called flow cytometry to look at a lot of these populations, which is a very cool technique. Um, and basically you can prepare your cells, you can stain them with fluorescent markers um, that can then be detected when you put them through a machine. Mm. And so I can look at relevant markers that I'm interested in that define these specific memory populations. And I can look at whether the populations are maybe bigger or smaller in animals that are infected or in animals that are immunised um, with perhaps just the parasite antigens. Um, and, yeah, so I make all of my observations on that. So it's long days in the lab um, of cell preparation. It takes about a full day. Yeah. to have a look at a lot of these things. Sounds like you're loving it, though, so I that's do. all good. A <laughs> couple of years to go and you'll be out there with the, with the PhD. Paulina, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us. It's, it's great to talk to you on radio, and um, I think this is an area which is it's fascinating how much is going into malaria research and how what a tough little bugger this thing is to, mm -hmm. to defeat because uh, so many groups around the world are trying to do it. But thanks mm -hmm. so much for chatting to us. No problems. Thanks for having me. Helena Petrek is from the Infection and Immunity Division of the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute. Dr. Linden, good to have you in. Good to see you, Dr. Shane. Talking climate. I know you're freezing, but that's weather. Um, different problem. Uh, Dr. Lauren, good Pleasure. to have you back. Yeah, good to be back, yeah. You stopped coughing? I have yeah. stopped coughing, yeah, yeah, so apologies if anyone heard that. No, they didn't. You were great. You did in the back <laughs> corner. We couldn't, no one knew what was going on. We just thought you were snorting something. I don't know what was going on. Dr. Ray, Dr. Good to Shane, see you. you know, I, I felt guilty. I'm like, I know the show must go on, but should we, like, even bother to look and see if she needs medical assistance. Well, or, well you, you, know. you were doing your story, and I thought she was throwing up in the back window, and I wasn't sure it was related, but and, uh, and, apparently and, and, not. Yeah, and, and looking at Dr. Shane's face, looking at that while uh, I'm speaking. Who knows? Fun. Who knows? It's all bad. Uh, thanks for listening to Einstein Go Go, folks. Remember, science is everywhere. We'll chat to you again next week. Have a fabulous Sunday. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au. Thank you.